Again, good morning. It is wonderful to be up here uh, with you all again. Um, it is my privilege every time I get to come up here and share God's word with you. Um, we are continuing on this, this series of looking at the church as God's kingdom. Not just God's kingdom, but the fact that God's kingdom is not made up of just individual people, but we are a family, that we are brought together um, through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And what does that look like for us to be as a family, as one? What is the church, what are we supposed to project out into the world? When, when the world comes and looks at the church, what is it supposed to see? Are we living into that or are we missing the, the mark in, in some ways? And so today we're going to um, continue on in that, and we're going to start a, a three-week series, really, a mini-series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first uh, major sermon um, that it gives. So it, before we dive into that, let us begin with prayer, shall we? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would penetrate our hearts, that you would, um, you would have grace and mercy upon us, that you would come to wherever we're at, because we're all fallen. We're all, we've, we've all just not lived up to the way you've called us to love you and to love others. Lord, you know our brokenness, you know the kind of the, the things that keep us up at night or keep us crying to ourselves. Lord, have grace and mercy upon us, forgive us. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for the joy in our life and ask, Lord, that you would give us your joy in the midst of whatever is going on. It's in your name I pray, amen. So to set up the scripture a little bit that Savannah read for us, we have Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Um, he, at this point, is very early on in his ministry. In fact, he had just gotten through his time of trial and temptation in the wilderness. He had been baptized. Um, that actually happened in reverse order. Um, he went and he started to call the first of his disciples and at this point, he was kind of in the Sea of Galilee, so the northern part of Israel, and he was going through the countryside, and he was, as he was get, calling his disciples, everywhere he would go, he would heal the, the people who needed healing. And so he was getting quite the fo following at this point in time. And so uh, as he was healing, as he was teaching and whatnot, and so crowds were beginning to gather. And it, so it starts, this scripture starts off by saying, as Jesus, as he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain and he sat down with his disciples and began to teach. And just to kind of give you some context here, we don't know exactly what mountain um, Jesus went in, and sat on and he preached. And, and this is a common thing that rabbis would do where they would be just kind of journeying. And as they came to a place where they wanted to teach, they would sit down and they, he would teach their disciples typically, but crowds could gather around and listen to what the rabbi had to say. So Jesus, seeing the large crowds, goes up to a mountain, so he's elevated, he sits down, and he begins to teach. In fact, we only see Jesus sitting down just a handful of times uh, in Scripture. Um, in fact, the next time that we see Jesus sit down, just a little side note here, is when he sits on the throne of grace up in, in heaven. Um, and we see that in Revelation. So Jesus sits down and he begins to teach. Now, to get into the language a little bit here, the Greek actually uses, for the definite article, the, it means the, like, so he comes to the mountain. We don't know which one, but it, there's something special about this mountain. He comes to the mountain and he sits down. In fact, many scholars believe that while this is not Mount Sinai, this is Jesus' Mount Sinai. 
where Moses went up to the mountain and he got all of the order and the law from, from God um, back on Mount Sinai, back in the wilderness. Here comes Jesus to kind of reset things a little bit and move things from the old covenant to the new covenant. And this is kind of his Mount Sinai moment where the, the new law is passed on and the old law is fulfilled. And Jesus begins a three-chapter sermon. Because, you know, he knew it was going to be chapters and verses back then. So he begins this three-chapter sermon, and it's chocked full of so much awesome stuff in here. I encourage you to read Matthews 5 through 7. Um, it, is, it is great. It's good. It's challenging. It's hard. As Jesus just pours out um, the, the Word of God for us. And he begins by what we commonly refer to as the Beatitudes. Blessed are those... Blessed are those who, and we, we call them the Beatitudes because that word blessed um, in Latin, that's where, it kinda, that's where we get the Beatitudes, it's a Latin translation of that. But blessed, uh, if you're going to look at the Greek there, it really would be translated as happy or fortunate. So some of your Bible translations might have it written down as happy are those who, or fortunate are those, blessed are those who, and then he goes on and gives a list. In fact, there are nine blessed are, but I would, I would suggest to you that there's actually eight beatitudes with a ninth one tacked on. And the reason why is because each beatitude has a blessing are, then a characteristic, and then a reward. And the first one and the eighth one have the exact same reward. It's like bookends. Blessed are the first ones, just to jump ahead, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is the first one. The eighth one says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think you're looking at a set of statements where Jesus is painting a picture saying, my kingdom, the people who belong to my kingdom, my kingdom, my family, they will look different than the world. They will act different than the world. And so let me give you a picture, Jesus is saying, of what it looks like to be a member of my kingdom, to be a member of my family. Now, these blessed statements, makarios in the Greek, blessed, they're, they're kind of weird statements. When I say weird is when I hear Jesus making these statements, I wouldn't necessarily agree. It's kind of incongruous. He goes, happy are those, fortunate are those, blessed are those who are poor, mourning, hungry, thirsty, offended, and persecuted. I don't know about you, but as Jesus is giving these, I would be like, well, wait a minute. I, I, I wouldn't be happy if I was poor, if I was mournful. I, I'm not happy then. I'm not happy if I'm hungry and thirsty. Jesus, what's going on here? What are you saying? You remember that Jesus is up in the northern part of Galilee, and that part of Israel typically was poor. They didn't have a whole lot. They were farmers. They were shepherds. They were oppressed. These were people who were oppressed not only by the Romans, but by their own country. 
they were oppressed in a religious sense where they were told over and over and over how perfect they had to be, how they had to follow the law perfectly. And they were reminded all the time of how they could not live up to that standard. Here were a group of people that were sick, who had just been healed by God, right? By Jesus, and they were poor and they were oppressed. They weren't blessed and happy. Blessed up until this point, if you looked at the word blessed or blessing in the Old Testament, it usually has to do with some sort of monetary wealth or possession or, st- or status. In fact, that's usually how we think of the word blessing today. You're blessed if you have a lot of stuff. You're blessed if you have money, if you have power, if you have food in abundance. You're blessed if you have a great career, if you have influence. This is how the people in Jesus today saw that word as well. They're striving to be happy, striving to be blessed, and to do that, they had to have things or or have position or have influence, whatever it might be. Then they might be happy. Or they were told by the spiritual leaders, blessed are you who follow the law perfectly. You'll be really happy if you can follow the law perfectly. Then God will love you. God will accept you if you can make sure you obey all 600 plus commands in the Old Testament. Blessed are those. Well, Jesus comes and he begins this sermon by shifting things. By turning things on their head, so to speak. He begins to say, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And before I jump in and go through all of these here, I want to kind of frame how I'm going to do this for you. You can take each one of these individually and look at it individually. and, And people have done that. And I think it's okay to do that. Let me give you an example. Blessed are those who mourn. There have been many people who have looked at that verse and found comfort in that verse in their times of mourning, in their times of grief. And while I think that it's applicable, I also want want you to see that at least the way I'm going to interpret this for you today is I think this is a process. I think you're looking at a spiritual process of how we enter into the kingdom and how that changes us and how we act out of that. So let's look at this from a a, a process standpoint and know that Jesus is shifting things from a physical sense that the people knew and understood in the Old Testament into a spiritual sense. From the Old Testament to to the New Testament, Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And just a, a little side note for you, if you are reading the Old Testament, one of the best ways I think you can kind of put the Old Testament into perspective is it is a physical picture of what is going on in our spiritual lives. So all the stuff that's going on in the Old Testament with all the rules and all the laws and everything that's happening with the nation of Israel, it's just a physical picture so we can kind of understand it from a physical sense of what is actually going on in our spiritual lives. And Jesus begins to make this shift here during the whole Sermon on the Mount, right? And he he starts it with the Beatitudes. So first one, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right there, the answer to that question is, how do I get to heaven? How do I get to be part of your kingdom, God? 
He doesn't say, blessed are those who follow all the rules and the laws of the Old Testament, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say that. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, there are three Greek words that are typically used for being poor. And this word has to do with utter destitution. Not just, I have a little bit of money and, and, you know, I just don't have quite enough. This is utter destitution. I have nothing and there is no hope for me to get what I need to pay back all my debt, to live, to whatever. It's utter destitution. So if you think about it from a money standpoint, it is someone who is so, so poor and broke that not only do they have nothing, but they're so in debt that any money that they get would just be going to the debtors. And Jesus uses this word and he says, blessed are those who are so poor in spirit, so destitute in spirit, so broken in spirit. This, my friends, is where the Christian walk starts. This is where our life as a Christian begins. It's when we get to the point when we realize That in my sin, I have no hope. In my brokenness, I have no hope in this world or in myself. I cannot fix all of my sin. I've tried and I failed. When I look at my life and how many times that I have failed, there's no way that any God who is a good God should look on me and accept me. There's no way that I can actually repay in good deeds the amount of stuff I've done in bad deeds. Yes, friends, we are all made in the image of God. But we're also all deeply fallen through sin. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's no way to right ourselves. Jesus is starting off by saying, my kingdom will be filled filled with people who have looked at themselves and they realize that they are so spiritually poor and bankrupt that they have no one else to turn to but me. No one else to turn to. The problem is, is we self-deceive ourselves so so often by saying, you know what, I'm, I'm fallen, I'm not perfect, but I'm not really that bad, right? I mean, I've seen other people, they are really bad, but compared to them, I'm doing all right. And even as Christians who have come to know Christ and come to know his grace, and at one point we were there living a life of trying to be good and everything, we get to the point where we're like, you know what, I'm doing all right. I mean, I'm not spiritually poor. I'm not that poor and broken. I'm, I mean, I'm not rich spiritually, but I'm, I'm right in the middle somewhere. And we forget where we're really at in our relationship with God. As far as how perfect and holy he is and how broken and sinful we are. And, I, and I'm saying this to you because I'm not trying to beat you down. I'm not trying to beat myself down. But there is a spiritual progression that needs to happen. That This is the starting point where you realize that we need Jesus. Jesus saying, those who are going to be in my kingdom, this is where they start. They realize that they have no spiritual currency in which to save themselves. Their spiritual debt is so great 
which leads us to the second one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. While I think that this could apply to any kind of mourning and grief, I think this applies to, this, to the idea of, I have realized that I am so destitute and poor. And I'm grieving over not only my state, but I'm grieving over all the ways that I have hurt and broken, hurt God by breaking his rules and rebelling against him. And I'm mournful for that. I am sad over that. My heart is breaking over the fact that here's this perfect God and I have turned my back on him time and time and time again and I am in mourning. I am in mourning. The word mourn here in the Greek has to do with outward grief. Like you're grieving so hard that it just comes out where you're sobbing. You can't hold it in anymore and you, have, you are poor in spirit and to the point where now you are grieving over it. You are sorrowful over what you've done in your life, who you become in your life, whatever that means, and you are sorrowful. In 2 Corinthians 2.7, Paul says that godly sorrow, there are two types of sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Jesus is saying, blessed is, is those, are those who mourn in this godly sorrow way. A sorrow that comes and stands before God and says, I cannot do this without you. I need you. And this type of sorrow, this type of mourning, this type of grieving brings repentance that leads to salvation. I don't know about you, but I think there are many times in my life where I so trust in the forgiveness of God in my life that I stop being sad over the times that I mess up and I sin. And I think maybe if I mourned a little bit more, if I grieved a little bit more of all the times that I have not lived up to the way that God has called me to live, maybe I would help me to turn around and not do that anymore. But we kind of like to skip over that mourning part and go right into the salvation part, Right? Are there things that you have been doing in your life, ways that you have been living that you know that are wrong and maybe you need to stop and mourn about that? Get on your knees and wail and say, God, I am so sorry. And this, again, this is not the sorry of the world that has no hope, but this is the sorry as we come before God. And blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted, right? They will be comforted. The word comfort here is the same Greek word that Jesus uses when he talks about the Holy Spirit as a new advocate will come to you. It is a legal word here as like a counselor. So think of yourself in a courtroom where you are mourning and sorrowful, you are poor in spirit, the judge has condemned you, and you are mourning for your sin. And here comes Jesus, the counselor to stand up to your adversaries, to go and put himself in your place so that you have hope. This is how you are comforted in your mourning of your sin is because Jesus, the, the advocate, the counselor, comes on your behalf and stands in the gap so that you might be forgiven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will be forgiven. Then we move on to blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek here means to be gentle, 
And in fact, it, it, the word would be used for inanimate objects or for animals as gentle animals. A meek animal, a meek horse would be, you know, that, a gentle animal. For the Christian, though, this meekness means something a little bit different. It's a meekness or humbleness that comes from the sense of inferior, inferiority of being a creature to the creator. It's knowing our right place before God. It's not thinking less of ourselves. You've heard that when it comes to humility, but thinking of ourselves less. But really, more than anything, it's saying, God, you are really big and huge and perfect and holy and amazing, and I am not. One of our biggest problems, or I should say, one of my biggest problems is thinking more of myself than I am. Of wanting to put myself in God's place to run my own life. To be king of my own kingdom. The kingdom, God's kingdom are full of meek people who understand their position with God. And when you understand your position with God, you also then understand your position, your relationship with others. When you see that Jesus, God on high, came down to serve, how, what else am I supposed to do but also then serve others? If the God up there does that and I'm down here, then I also need to do the same thing. That God's church God's family, God's kingdom should be represented by humility and meekness. Now, this is not weakness. It's not just rolling over to the world. But it's standing firm. In fact, we bear patiently the sins of this world, not bowing under it or violently reacting to it, but standing tall and firm. In humility, in gentleness. And this is God's upside down kingdom. It says, The meek will inherit the earth rather than those who strive by power or influence. If you follow the progression, we start by being broken, poor in spirit, to mourning for that, to having the comforter, the advocate come in our place, and we realize where we actually stand in relationship to this God, and we are meek and humble. And we see how good God is. How undeserving that grace is for our lives, and we look to see how good it is. And the fourth one then leads us to, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they will be filled. Again, think, uh, happy are those, right? Happy are those who are hungering and thirsting. How are you happy when you're hungry and thirsty, right? How are you happy when you're mourned? And we'll get into that in a little bit. But God's people are driven by the righteousness of God. We long for this world to be made right we long for our relationship with him to be made right. We hunger and we thirst for it. We crave it. And the promise is that we know someday we will be filled. The Greek word, 
when it says that we will be satisfied. It's all one Greek word, and it refers to feeding a bull for a slaughter. It's a very specific word. That when you want to fill a, a calf, feed the calf so much that he would be a good calf to eat, right? You overfill him, you stuff him. It is actually the same word that Jesus, that, that is used in the miracle of the 5,000, feeding the 5,000, that everyone was filled and stuffed after the miracle of the 5,000. Not just satisfy like, oh, that was good. I'm doing good. I can maybe use some dessert later. No, like, like this is, you know, so stuffed. You're unbuttoning your pants and you're scooting away from the table. This is that kind of stuffed, right? And as we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, for God's justice, there will come a day when we can't get any more of it. We're stuffed with it. That God has made everything right. Everything just. So as Christians, as kingdom, we get to the point in our lives where we are hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness here in this world. Longing for Jesus to come back. I like how it says hunger and thirst. Right? Not just who hunger for it or who thirst for it, but hunger and thirst. And I am reminded of Jesus saying that he is the bread of life and the living water. If we eat of him, we will never be hungry. And if we drink of him, we will never be thirsty. How can people who are starving, who are hungering and thirsting, be happy? Well, I kind of picture it this way. There's a difference between being starving and hungry and thirsty and seeing no hope of where you're going to get the next meal. Or being hungry and thirsty on Thanksgiving Day morning where you say, you know what, I'm not even going to eat my lunch today because I want to save room for what is coming. And yes, I'm going to be very hungry, but I'm happy because I know the feast that is going to be in a couple hours, Right? That is where we as Christians land when, when it comes to this. I am hungry, hungering and thirsting, but I know there will be a day when all of this will be taken care of. And I have joy knowing that that day is coming. So we shift to number five. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Mercy. Now, mercy, just to kind of define this for you, it's not getting what you deserve. As in, you're not getting the punishment. You're found guilty, but you're not getting the punishment that you should have. You're not getting the vengeance. You're not getting the misery of your situation. And I find this interesting because it says, those, blessed are those who are merciful. Because if you remember the one right before us, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So you'd think those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness would be quick to not give mercy, to uphold the law, hold the justice, right? You offended me, you hurt me, and therefore your punishment is this. But God's people live in this weird dichotomy, this weird tension where we long for the justice and the uh, righteousness of God at the same time. We're so thankful that, that that righteousness did not come onto my life. And I'm so thankful I did not get what I deserved for my sin. And because of that, I go and I extend mercy. I extend mercy to those who have offended me, my family, who have offended God. 
It's interesting, this whole idea of mercy versus righteousness. The next one says, and I'm going to combine these two together, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. My friends, the way you get to be pure in heart is by offering up mercy and forgiveness. We go from being broken in spirit to mourning for it to getting the, the, the counselor there who offers us forgiveness. But before we actually get, receive that forgiveness in full, we must then give out mercy and forgiveness to others. In Matthew chapter 6, just a little bit on in this big three-chapter sermon, Jesus says the Lord's Prayer. We said it this morning, right? And there's a part in there about forgiveness, right? And we say trespasses, forgive our trespasses as, what is it? Yes, as we forgive others. And if that wasn't clear enough, right after the Lord's Prayer, which we don't usually say in church, the next line says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I want you to understand, salvation is not by works. God has already given you, bought your forgiveness. He paid the price of all your sins on the cross. And he says, here, Michael, I have forgiven you if you will receive it. However, if I take that mercy and grace and then I don't go and offer that same mercy and grace, God will come to me and say, I gave you this gift and you did not use it. You did not pass it along and I'm taking it back. But when we, as children of God, come before him, receive that forgiveness, and we extend mercy and forgiveness to others, we become cleansed of sin. And we become pure of heart, and we can go and stand in, in front of the throne of grace with boldness and with confidence, knowing that when God sees us, he doesn't see a broken sinner who had no hope, but he sees me through the blood of Jesus as righteous, and he sees his righteousness there. And I can go and I can stand before God. And I can boldly make requests and I can praise him. And I can see the glory of God. I can see him face to face. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. And we begin to shift more to, towards others. We talk about mercy towards others and now being a peacemaker. And we're talking about here people who are seeking to make peace. That God's people are a people who long and seek reconciliation and restoration in people's lives. God's people should be defined by those who cannot stand division and brokenness within friendships, within families, within workplaces, within communities. But we, we strive to bring restoration and reconciliation. Are there people in your life, family members, where you have a broken, strained relationship with? Maybe co-workers, classmates. One of the characteristics of a Christian, of being part of the family of God, is that we need to strive to fix those relationships, to repair them. And we do this through forgiveness 
through grace, through mercy. We have the Holy Spirit coursing through us where we can bring God's power back into relationships, where we can restore relationships. We can mend broken homes. We can even mend families and communities and even nations as peacemakers through the power of God as we have his righteousness in us and we come out and we pour out mercy. And the eighth one, the eighth and the ninth are, are kind of very connected here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the ninth tag on it, Jesus doubles down on this. He says, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, how can you be happy when you're being persecuted, right? How can you be fortunate when you're being persecuted? Jesus is giving a snapshot of what his people, what his kingdom will look like. And he says, my people who are saved by grace, who go out and give mercy, who are peacemakers, who are going out trying to spread my kingdom, they will be persecuted. They will be persecuted. Not it might happen or whatnot. It says they will be. Jesus says in John chapter 15, he says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world will love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would have listened to you. One of the signs of being part of God's kingdom, being part of God's family, is persecution. Is persecution. And my friends, let me give you this perspective on it. If you are not being persecuted, maybe you look too much like the world. Maybe you look too much like the world. Jesus says the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. Everywhere Jesus went, when he taught, when he healed, when he did all these wonderful things, there were, there were people who would follow him and love him. There's always a segment that came by who persecuted him, who hated him, who didn't like him, who tried to trick him and undermine him, get him arrested, and eventually kill him. And Jesus says, you're no better than me. If it happened to me, it'll happen to you if you are one of my family, if you are part of my kingdom. And he says, rejoice if this is happening to you. Rejoice. You're storing up treasures in heaven. You will get what is coming to you. I will give you blessings for your persecution. But rejoice. And did you know that the early church rejoiced so much in persecution? They even longed to become a Christian martyr. 
There are, there are letters written saying how much people longed to be able to. They saw it as great joy to be able to die for their faith. The early church knew that when they were being persecuted, the kingdom of God was growing. The kingdom of God is growing. In fact, you see that all throughout history. When the church is being persecuted, that's when it grows the most. But persecution is uncomfortable. It's hard. It's costly. It's hard to be happy, hard to be fortunate, to see yourself as fortunate as this, but Jesus even doubles down and says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. Friends, don't be afraid to stand up in your homes, in your workplaces, in your community as being a Christian. Don't be afraid to stand up for the way God has called us to live. Don't be afraid to stand up and be a peacemaker, to stand up and offer mercy and grace, maybe take someone else's punishment on their behalf because that's what Jesus did for you. Don't be afraid to be bold in your meekness. Yes, you will, un you will encounter persecution. But how fortunate are you of that? How happy you should be of that. That means that God's kingdom is advancing and the world doesn't like it, but you are bringing to people who desperately need it, who are poor in spirit, the good news of the gospel. And so let the persecution come. That we might stand on the promises of God as the choir sang to us today. That we might boldly stand and proclaim the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as I close today, how are you doing in your faith? Instead of looking at other people and trying to compare yourself there, look at to this list, these Beatitudes. And where are you at? Where are you at in this progression? And do some of you need to go all the way back to the beginning and say, you know what, I'm broken. I'm in desperate need of a Savior. I've tried to do it on my own, and I cannot. Jesus, save me. Lord, or Calvary, let us be a church who is poor in spirit, who mourns over our mistakes and our sins, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who's meek and gentle but bold and strong, who just doles out mercy to this community so generously. And let us be peacemakers. Let us be peacemakers. And you know what? If that comes with persecution, bring it on. Because Calvary will stand. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you would be with us today that uh, you might teach us how to be happy, how to be blessed, how to rest on the promises that you have for us that we know that they are going to come true. And because of that, we can have joy and delight in our life here on earth, in your kingdom, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we praise your name and we give you all the glory.